Well, we are back in our series on spiritual gifts. Um, whoops. Calling it Gifted for Growth. And uh, we are, it's hard to believe, we are in week eight, I believe it is. Is that right? No, week nine. Week nine of this series in, in uh, spiritual gifts. So, um, overall, has this been helpful study for you guys? I mean, there's probably no other answer, right? You wouldn't tell me no. That's kind of a dumb question. But, okay, I'm glad it's been helpful. Um, hopefully it will continue to be as we round out our study through the rest of the semester. And uh, if you remember back, kind of where we started, we overviewed the gifts, and we were talking about those gifts, so we do this every time, just so I want to drill this in. What is a spiritual gift? God given ability to build up the church. That's right. So, do we all have one, at least one? Yes or no? Yes? Good. Um, why are they given? We said it in the definition, but to build up the church. Okay, does that mean I should be thinking about myself when I'm doing when I'm exercising spiritual gift? You sure? What if you're exercising the gift you don't have? Oh, sorry, it's a trick question. Hey, not in my notes. <laughs> the right answer is no. You shouldn't be thinking about yourself necessarily. But there is a there is a reality that you do have joy. And, and fruitfulness as you exercise your gifts, as you stretch those spiritual muscles, so to speak, and fan the flame of your gift. Speaking of fan the flame, are gifts static or dynamic? What do I mean by dynamic? They can grow, yep, as we use them. And what can they also do? They can atrophy. They can, they can diminish if, they, if we're not using them. So we, see, we saw a lot of that in Paul's instructions to Timothy. And uh, last question, where are the gifts found? Where in the, in the scriptures? What chapter? Okay, so you got 1 Corinthians 12. Yep. Ephesians 4. Yep. Romans 12. And 1 Peter 4. It's just two numbers, guys. 4 and 12. Okay, so you got to remember. 4 and 12. Um, all right, that's good. Excellent. So last time we were together, just kind of drilling down there, we, we looked at these gifts, you know, we kind of charted them out into this, or I gave you a chart last week, and we divided the gifts up into the foundational gifts here, uh, based on the language in Ephesians 2, uh, the foundational gifts, and we looked at those, we kind of started there, and then we, we pivoted over the last few weeks into the ongoing gifts, or the gifts that are for today, and last time we were together, we looked at evangelists. How would you guys define evangelists? What is that? Or the, the gift of evangelism? Take a stab at it. Sharing the gospel? Yeah. The gift of, of sharing the gospel, essentially, yeah. I think the way I defined it last week was the ability to effectively share the gospel with others. Now, granted, should we all be trying to evangelize in our spheres of influence? Yes. But the reality here that the spiritual gift language is that there will be some in the body that... These gifts show this. This there's an evident gifting here for the for evangelism, for sharing the gospel with others in an effective and clear way. So that means there will be a, a, a few that are especially burdened and gifted for interacting boldly with unbelievers, and modeling for the rest of the congregation what it looks like to evangelize. But when it's more formal, if you kind of want to think about it as like more formalized, it's the evangelist, right? More like the capital E evangelist. 
or that in today's terms, the church planter or a missionary, somebody who's focused on sharing the gospel to the ends of planting new churches, starting new, starting new work. So we looked at that last time. And today we're going to talk about a, a few related gifts. We're going to kind of keep working on the list and do a three-for-one and talk about the gifts of shepherding, teaching, and, uh, what is it, exhortation. Uh, shepherding, teaching, and exhortation. And again, these are going to be these are there's a lot of overlap here between the evangelist and the the shepherd because you can see the evangelists do shepherding work. We'll talk about that in a moment, especially if they're establishing churches. But the pastor and the teacher, this exhorter, these are these are folks that are kind of here longer term. So we'll talk about that again in a moment. So since we're doing since we're doing three gifts, I'm going to kind of frame this up a little bit differently. We'll hit each one of them um, separately. Okay, but we'll see that they're together. They belong together in our, in our minds. Let's just jump straight in because we've got a lot to talk about today. We're talking about shepherding, teaching, and exhortation. And we're going to start with the first gift here in the list in Ephesians 4, and that's the gift of shepherding. The gift of shepherding. I'll give you a second to write that down before I just kind of keep blowing on here. Your translations may have the pastor in Ephesians 4, but I think that that's, that's, good. that's a Latin kind of derivative. But shepherding is, is the better imagery here because it's a metaphor. All right, so I don't know. Let's see. Let's look at Ephesians um, 4 for a minute and just see, see how this breaks down. This is the only place in the Bible where we find this gift explicitly is listed as a gift, Okay. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Okay, so there it is. There's the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is one of the key lift, list, gift lists. There it is. One of the key gift lists in Scripture. And here it is we see shepherds listed as one of those gifts. You can already see there that it's closely related to the gift of teaching. But we'll talk about that in a moment. So let's get back to... Um, asking the first question here, what do we learn about this gift in Scripture? Is it, what, what should we know about it? Well, it's helpful to kind of realize that where this gift starts is it, it really starts in the Old Testament and to understand this background of shepherding in the Old Testament. Most of us, except for the one guy I met on Thursday, don't have sheep. Okay? I did meet a guy on Thursday that has sheep. Yeah, crazy. Um, tends the flock. Uh, so in that, in that sense, he is a shepherd. But for most of us, that's not the case. Uh, so this background of shepherding is very important. Obviously, we understand the concept of shepherding. But it's important to know that shepherding in the Old Testament is sort of a stand-in. It's a metaphor for kingship. Okay? It's a metaphor for kingship. It's a metaphor for the leadership in particular. And that's, that's true across the board in the ancient Near East. So, you know, the Pharaoh is pictured as, like, having the shepherd's crook and his other, you know, thing in his, you know, because the shepherds are, are people who take care of their, quote-unquote, kingdom, their sheep, their fold. So this imagery of a shepherd is a metaphor for leadership in the ancient Near East and particularly of Israel. And shepherding, then, is a metaphor for what these leaders do. It's how they lead, it's how they care for, it's how they teach, it's how they protect God's people. 
And so if you, if you, that's, that's clear, and so there's all this interplay between David as a shepherd, and then he becomes the first, you know, the real king, uh, you know, in foil to Saul. So there's all this interplay there in the, in the Old Testament. But the point, though, is that the thing we need to realize is that Israel's kingship failed. And if you want to write down just one text here, I don't have this for you, but it would be Ezekiel 34. Israel's kingship, the leaders, the shepherds, is what Ezekiel calls them there, they, they failed. They did not lead the nation to trust and obey the Lord like they were supposed to do. Instead, they used God's people to sort of fatten themselves. That's the imagery. He kind of keeps, he keeps on the shepherds are slaughtering the sheep and they're using it to, to fatten themselves. But in that same chapter in Ezekiel 34, the Lord promises to judge those unfaithful shepherds and then to actually shepherd the people himself. He kind of commits to saying, hey, I'm, I'm going I'm to come find my lost sheep. I'm going to bring them in and I'm going to be their shepherd. So then, interestingly, not to us, but in Ezekiel, he says he's going to do that by raising up a new Davidic shepherd, all in, all in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. A new Davidic shepherd, a new king coming in the line of David, patterned after David's own life. It's described in this shepherd language again, and that's how God's going to carry out the shepherding of his people. So if you've got Ezekiel 34 kind of in your mind there with the background, that's helpful background in shepherding and leadership, you could also add one more chapter, Jeremiah 23. And what Jeremiah does, Jeremiah chapter 23, Jeremiah takes this one step further and says, not only is God going to remedy the problem by replacing Israel's unfaithful shepherds with a true shepherd, he's also going to give Israel, after that, more shepherds that are faithful. Faithful shepherds in the plural. And that's Jeremiah 23, 4. He's going to appoint multiple shepherds. So that's the background here coming into this shepherding gift. Okay. So then as we, as we move into the new, new covenant, Christ is the good shepherd. John 10. There's lots of texts that we could cite on this theme, but that's an easy one. Good shepherd, John 10. John clearly presents Jesus as fulfilling this messianic expectation of the shepherd. And then his apostles, at the end of John, in John 21, especially Peter is presented as those under-shepherds, those additional shepherds from Jeremiah that would fulfill um, Jeremiah's predictions. Remember what he says when he restores Peter? What does he tell him to do? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, tend my flock. And three different times he tells him to do that using that same shepherding analogy. So it's very clear what Jesus is doing there with, his, with the twelve and particularly Peter. But I want to, what I want to key in on is the tra- on the transition of the shepherding role from the apostles to what we might call the local elders. Okay, So it goes from Christ to the apostles to the local elders. They fulfill the shepherding role in an ongoing way after the apostles. And this comes out very clearly in several places, but especially in Acts chapter 20. Okay, Acts chapter 20, and I think I have this on the screen. So what's going on in Acts 20? We have Paul who's clearly in this you know, apostle, apostolic circle. He's one of these shepherds in fulfillment of Jeremiah. But Paul knows he's passing off the scene. He's headed toward Jerusalem. He knows he's going to be in prison there. He thinks he's probably going to die there. And so he, he passes through Ephesus, 
A church is already planted. Leaders are already established there. The elders are already established in this church in Ephesus. He's passing through. He goes to Miletus, and he calls the elders to come to him. And Acts chapter 20 is kind of this baton passing, if you want to think about it that way. Paul the Apostle is passing the baton to the elders, um, and Luke gives us a lot of data here of what Paul says in Acts chapter 20 because he wants us to key in on this leadership transition. And basically what I want you to see here is in Acts chapter 20, we're just going to excerpt one bit of this speech that Paul gives to these elders, these kind of final charges here. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, so it's here the flock language, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. Now I've underlined that. That's the verb to shepherd. So you can see the flock imagery already in the beginning of the verse to to pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock. The Spirit's made you overseers to care for the church of God. So you're going to see this relationship between oversight and shepherding. Which he obtained with his own blood. So he goes on to continue to, to continue the imagery. I know that after my departure, so Paul's saying after I leave, fierce wolves, he's keeping with the imagery, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, meaning the church. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, your job as a shepherd is to be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And he's, Paul's, Paul's presenting himself as a model in Acts 20, and one of the things he does is he teaches the whole counsel of God to the church constantly. And again, he's admonishing, he's shepherding, he's doing this work of teaching in the midst of the congregation. So, my point here, all I'm wanting to do is establish this connection between the elders of a local church and this gift of shepherding. Does it make sense? Do you see that? All right, let's move forward. So, what do we learn about it in the New Testament? There's that connection, really, is what I want to draw out between the elders and the shepherd. shepherding gift. So, what is this gift? This sets us up, this Acts 20 sets us up to get a working definition of the shepherding gift. And really what we, what we do see about shepherding is the apostles and the elders in Scripture are taking God's people to maturation. Okay? They're taking God's people to maturation. So we could define the shepherding gift like this. It's the ability to oversee, there's our oversight word, it's the ability to oversee the maturation or the growth of God's people. It's the ability to oversee the the spiritual growth, the maturation of God's people into the image of Christ. If you want to stick with the metaphor, the shepherding role is to feed the sheep with God's Word. Feed the sheep with God's Word. Protect the sheep from these ravenous wolves of false teachers to lead the sheep toward the green pastures of the new creation, to heal the sheep when they get hurt with ensnaring sin and to find them when they go astray. That's the shepherding gift. You know, keep it with metaphor. But I think what binds all that together is this ability, the gift is an ability to oversee this development, to oversee this maturation of God's people. 
And I think you see this pretty clearly, this oversight, not just in Acts 20, but also in 1 Peter 5. So here's Peter, one of the apostles again, another, another, another call to the local elders of the church, the, the local shepherds. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and as a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. 1 Peter 5, 2, shepherd the flock of God. There's the central command. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. So there's our oversight idea. Not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So there it is again, this, this metaphor of shepherding, and it's connected to oversight. So I'm calling it the ability to oversee the maturation of God's people. And just a few more things to throw on here. This is typically a long-term function, okay? A long-term function, or at least has the long-term in view. doesn't mean if you're an elder, you have to stay there at the church the rest of your life, or if you have the gift of shepherding, you can never leave that church that you're shepherding. But it does have the long-term in view, meaning contrast that with the evangelist. The evangelist, the church planter, the missionary, he's going to certainly be shepherding in the beginning, Make sense? Like he plants this church, he's shepherding this church, he's trying to get this church established. But what's his end goal? His end goal is to raise up those long-term elders, those long-term shepherds. So he can turn that church over to the leaders, like we see Paul doing in the, in the book of Acts. Because the, the evangelist wants to move on to another work. When the time is right. You know, he's not impatient, but Paul clearly had a concern to see that these churches were being built up and were in good hands. All right, one other thing I want to throw on here as we're thinking about what is this gift. It's, it's, this is done, in a, like we already said, in an official capacity through the appointment of elders in the assembly. But it's likely, very likely, that this gift is not limited to just the elders. There are several in the church that are gifted in this way, and I think both men and women. Doesn't mean women are going to be elders. Okay, Paul's very explicit about that. But it doesn't mean they can't have the gift of shepherding. They have the wisdom and skill that are necessary to take someone from immaturity to maturity. To effectively and skillfully oversee someone's development. Or even like you think like a Sunday school teacher or some small group leader. The uh, the development of a group. The growth of a group in Christ. So just because you have the gift of shepherding then does not mean you're going to be an elder or you have to be an elder. But... All elders must have the gift of shepherding. Does that make sense? Just because you have the gift doesn't mean you're automatically going to be an elder, or even that you should. But all elders must have the gift of of shepherding. They must be seasoned in this gift. So that raises another question then. How do I know that I have it? How do I know that I, I have this gift? Well, initially... It'll show up in, in careful oversight of your own soul. That's where all this starts. Okay, you can't oversee others, like in Acts 20, if you're first not watching yourselves. Right? That's the first thing Paul says to these elders. Watch yourselves. So it'll show up in careful oversight, careful shepherding of your own soul. So ask yourself, are you able to watch your own life and doctrine closely? Can you trace out root issues? 
You know, when you're sinning, can you trace that back to the deceptions that you're believing and maybe some of the idolatries that are in your heart? Are you able to chart out the path that you need forward in growth, knowing what to put off and put on? Are you able to make progress in that growth as you, as you shepherd your own heart? Because the shepherding gift always starts right there. And it never bypasses that work. Now, does every Christian need to do this? Yes or no? Yes. But the reality is, some will be more gifted in this area than others. And it will show up with clarity in those that the Lord is raising up with this shepherding gift. That's where it starts. So the next, okay, okay, maybe that's there. Okay, I'm learning to do that. So what else would it look like? Well, it would show up in your genuine concern for the well-being and growth of others. Like that's going to be on your mind. And you're thinking, well, shouldn't every Christian think about that? Yes, every Christian should have that in their, in their sights. But this, the one that has the gift of shepherding is burdened by this. Your heart will be burdened for the saints, that they learn to overcome sin. And you're going to be willing to stick your neck out for them and inconvenience yourself to get the truth to them so they can. Nobody's going to have to tell you to be proactive in this if you have this shepherding gift. You might have to fan the flame. You might have to overcome the fear of man at points. But there is a proactivity built in to the shepherding gift. You're going to find yourself running toward the battle instead of away from it, even if you don't know what you're doing. You more easily adopt the spiritual plight of others. You have a knack for, what, for, for discerning what is their next step. Right? So this is where you're at. This is where your next step needs to be. You're good at helping them take that next step. We'll talk about the gift of exhortation here in a minute. Um, That's our third gift, but you're good at helping them take that next step. And so, yeah, do we all want to aspire to this? We do. But for those with the gift of shepherding, these folks are out in front as examples to the rest of us and what this looks like. And we all, the church benefits, we learn from these gifted individuals. And finally, it'll show up in connection not just with your own life, not just with your kind of running toward the battle and your burden for souls, but it will show up in connection with another gift, our next gift we're going to talk about, and that's the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching. And that's because shepherding in the Bible, this metaphor, is carried out, the the primary vehicle to carry out this shepherding task is through teaching. The primary vehicle, the primary way that, that shepherding is carried out is through teaching. So let's, let's talk just a bit about this gift. And you can see that it shows up in, in every gift list we have, including, you know, in a, broadly, uh, even in, well, I guess all the gifts are nested in 1 Peter 4, because he, he gives you the broad categories of the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. So you could argue that all the gifts are nested in, in, in that. But my point here is that they're, teaching shows up in, in all these gifts lists. So, first question we need to ask is, how is it connected to shepherding? So I, I just said that it's the primary vehicle that shepherding is carried out. But I want you to see this kind of um, in, or 
hear this at least in the text itself. If you remember back to Ephesians 4.12, I don't think I had this in, in the notes, but if you remember back to Ephesians 4.12, you have the apostles. What's next? The prophets. Yep. What's next? The evangelists. And then what's next? Shepherds and teachers. And if you remember, the shepherds and teachers grammatically are connected. Okay, it doesn't mean they're the exact same gift, necessarily. It could mean that, but it doesn't mean that. I don't think that doesn't mean they're the exact same gift. But it means they're intimately connected in the grammar, the Greek grammar of that text. So my point there is that even grammatically, Paul makes a close connection in his mind between shepherding and teaching. And since we just saw that Christ is the good shepherd, remember that, John 10? It makes sense that he's teaching constantly. He teaches publicly to the crowds. He teaches privately to his disciples. He teaches in formal settings. He teaches in informal settings. Forty-six times in the gospel, he is described as teaching. In the gospels total, he's described as teaching. He's also called a teacher 44 times in the gospel. So, this good shepherd is clearly a teacher. A teaching shepherd. The apostles, too, are presented as constantly teaching. You can see Acts 5.42 for the 12. And then again, that's like a summary statement. And then Acts 28.31 for Paul. The point is, shepherds are teachers. Okay? And that's the primary way they shepherd. And this explains, then, why the only stated skill for an elder beyond the character that they need to have, right? The only explicit skill an elder or a shepherd needs to have is what? The ability to teach. 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Elders teach. That means then he, if he can't teach, at least at some level, then he can't elder or shepherd. Because that's the primary way that this shepherding gift takes place. It doesn't mean, however, that if you have the gift of teaching, you also have the gift of shepherding. And these like syllogisms are confusing, right? Like, uh, does it, just because you have the gift of teaching doesn't mean then you have everything necessary to be a seasoned faithful shepherd, right? Usually you do, but shepherding is a bit more involved. It's not just the clear communication of biblical truth, but it's knowing how the truth applies. And we'll talk about that more in a second. So, what is this gift then? Well, the definition's pretty intuitive, and it's the ability to interpret and clearly communicate the truth to others. The ability to interpret and clearly communicate the truth to others. It starts with interpreting, but it doesn't stop there. Okay, it starts there, but it does not stop. It moves and really centers on the clear communication of that written revelation to others. And again, we're just fleshing this out. So there's obviously a spectrum to this gift. It ranges from informal, you know, casual conversations to formal Bible studies, you know, teaching classes, preaching sermons. Or you could think of it as ranging from personal, you know, the one-on-one dynamics, communicating truth to an individual, from personal to public, teaching and preaching opportunities. Sometimes it might manifest in writing gifts, 
even though writing is not a gift necessarily in the, in the formal sense that we're using that word, but in writing abilities, but it's not always going sh- to manifest there. The bottom line is this. If you're gifted to teach, it means that you're able to clearly and compellingly communicate truth to other people. That's the gift of teaching. And again, you're gonna, there's going to be some teachers that are better teachers than others. Okay? And so the, the idea is the better you are on that spectrum, meaning the more effectively you can communicate, the more that's affirmed in the congregation, and people are saying we're growing from this gift, you're shepherding well, you're doing this in a, in a skillful way, the church is benefiting, that you should, the, the further that goes along, and these people, the, uh, among these elders, so they're even recognized within the elders, there's going to be some who are better at this than others, that those that are the best at this, you need to pay. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, those that are the best at this, you need to pay. This is the only gift that's explicitly connected with payment in the church. It does not mean it's wrong to pay others. Say with the gift of administration, we pay lots of people with the gift of administration at our church to help us run things. Okay, But Paul exhorts Timothy to make sure that those, that those shepherds who are, who are laboring hard in preaching and teaching are remunerated, are paid. You know why that is? Any guesses? So they can be better shepherds and teachers? More time? On average, guess how long it takes me to write a sermon? How many? Three hours. hours. Okay, keep going. Eight hours, hours. keep going. About, but depending on the sermon, 12 to 15. From start to finish. You think I just wake up and do this. That's not the way this works. So, on the front end, it takes a long time to do the kind of spade work that teachers need to do to be able to communicate something effectively and clearly to you. Now again, you might have, the more seasoned you get, maybe the more efficient you can become. I'm not talking about just sitting down to write a sermon. I'm talking about from the start of that, of the study, to preparing it. Again, it was you get more skill, you can build on that foundation. But it takes time. Preaching takes time. We've got to study hard to rightly handle the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Thoughtful sermons just don't pop out as much as we might wish they did. And it's not just teaching either, okay, like publicly. It's all the individual teaching times that we do throughout the week called shepherding counseling, right? That takes time too. It takes thought. Administering the word on an individual basis, thinking through all the implications, that takes time. Not to mention all the other tasks that we do, uh, as far as leading and oversight of, of ministries and equipping and mentoring. But Paul says, remunerate those who labor, especially in preaching and teaching. So they can be more effective at it. They can do more of it, right? So again, think through that. If, I'm, if I have to work 60 hours a week to support my family then you're not going to get the same quality. I'm not going to have the same availability to counsel you. So again, it doesn't mean that every pastor needs to be, needs to be paid. You know, Rich is an extremely effective teacher. He's extremely gifted. He should be paid. We should be, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Um, Rich has chosen the path of a, of, a, of a little, what do you call it, little e engineer, right? Yes, yes, yes. He had to wrestle with that, though. 
but he thought he could be more effective in that sphere and continuing to do, you know, the big E elder, and he works like crazy. Um, works very diligently. So I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not creating a dichotomy here. I'm just saying with the paid element of ministry, it frees up folks to be able to do more of this and lift heavier than those who are not. So how do I know if I have this gift? Well, first, it's going to manifest with an intense craving to know the truth. And that is usually, in the younger folks, accompanied by lots of questions. Okay? An intense craving to know the truth and is usually accompanied by lots of questions. This doesn't guarantee that you have the gift of teaching, but it almost always starts here. The Lord grants you an inquisitive mind that seeks clarity for yourself in the truth. Now, should every Christian do this? We can say this about every gift. Yes. But this is going to be kind of this is going to be a noteworthy feature of the, the person that's gifted to teach. Second, you're going to be excited about the clarity you've received, and you're going to want to tell everybody. Right? You're going to be excited about the clarity you've received, and you're going to want to tell everybody. Again, it's not a telltale sign of the teaching gift but it's headed in the right direction. Somebody who is a teacher is not content merely learning, but also communicating or sharing what they've learned in a study for the benefit of others. And third, what you share, here it is, ready, will be clear, at least at some level, and it will be helpful to the saints. The saints were going to walk away with more clarity in the Scriptures rather than less clarity after spending time with you. This doesn't mean you can't fan the flame of your gift and improve it over time. You certainly can. Okay? The joke is you don't want to hear my first sermons. Uh, you can, you can, and the congregation has told me that before. So, you, but you can fan the flame here in this gifting. But the urge to help people verbally, the urge to help people verbally will come out of you if the Lord has gifted you in teaching. And over time, as you grow, it will become evident. And then fourth, the way you could know is just ask your friends. Ask people that are close to you. Hey, like, shoot straight with me here. Do you think I have the gift of teaching or not? Okay? All right. What should I be aware of if I have this gift? All right, we've got to move quick. Okay? Remember how we talked about evangelists had imbalance in the Great Commission? Right? They just prioritize, they, they tend to prioritize just sharing the gospel. Well, it goes the other way with those who have the gift of teaching. They have an imbalance in the other way, in the maturation side, often, and they often neglect, at least they often don't emphasize evangelism. Now, again, I'm not talking about here necessarily. I'm just talking about, like, in general, if you're gifted in this way, you're going to be thinking, people need to grow. Like, you just care about evangelism. It's really, this is where it's at. Right? That's, how, that's kind of how the, the, language, the language goes, you know, if you're an evangelist or if you're a shepherd teacher. So don't want to imbalance the Great Commission. They're both part of making disciples. They have to come to faith in Jesus, and then they have to grow in Jesus. So they complement one another. The teachers tend to also think this is the most important gift. Right? <laughs> Again, I'm, 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 I probably have the gift of teaching at some level. So I'm, I'm basically 
self-diagnosing here. This is, here's my problems. I'm telling, I'm telling you these, these problems here. Uh, we think it's the most important gift. And that, that means then, okay, that this is the one that's prioritized, and you kind, of, you kind of are tempted to view everybody through this lens as though, you know, you kind of should be a teacher at some level, or you should think like I do. And that, that's, not, that's not good. That's not helpful. Um, there's also the temptation to lust after preeminence, to kind of want to be a teacher, because you see, you think, you know, Rich is up in front, Clay's up in front, Pastor Farrell's up in front. Wow, look how people respect them um, sometimes. And, it, and you want to say, oh, I want that preeminence. But the scriptures are very clear. You've got to enter into this teaching thing very soberly. James 3.1 needs to haunt you, which says not many of you should become teachers. Why? Because you're going to incur a stricter judgment from the Lord. So the burden has to drive you. The need has to drive you, not some, not some desire for, for preeminence or to be well thought of because you're, you're not going to be that well thought of. Um, all right. Thinking that it... it here's, another, here's another temptation. Thinking it somehow by, that, that, that I can just be a teacher bypassing my own faithfulness. Right? That's a pitfall of this, this gifting. If I'm, if I'm gifted and I'm, you know, I can turn a phrase or I, I've discovered something in Scripture and I'm just, now I think I need a platform. You know, if I'm a teacher. I need to, I need to, I need to speak. I need to talk about it. But in the reality, what happens is this gifting is affirmed and validated through the faithfulness of the individual as that continues to grow. So it doesn't bypass faithfulness. If, if you're going to be entrusted, according to Paul, if somebody's going to be entrusted with teaching others, not only must they have the ability, but they also must have some amount of faithfulness present already. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. I mean, we could just keep going on these pitfalls uh, as I self-indict. But there's, there's the entitlement mentality, kind of closely related to the, to the teacher that sometimes happens, which thinks that I deserve a public formal post to teach if I just have the gift. Again, not recognizing that I can exercise my gift in all kinds of informal ways that doesn't require any kind of informal post to teach. And that's actually the, the training and authenticating ground for this teaching gift. And then last... And, but not least, my favorite, talking at people, droning on and on, loving to hear yourself talk, and failing to listen well. Okay? That is often a pitfall of this, a limitation, or a, 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 yeah, no, it's, not, it's not a problem with a gift, it's usually the, the one who holds the gift. All right, how can I maximize this gift? If you've got it, okay, you've got to listen. It starts with listening to really good teaching and listening to it a lot, right? And just obviously for your own soul, but then to kind of benefit studying how that, how that guy is, is communicating, how he's arriving at, at how he's presenting these things. It would look like finding somebody in your church who teaches well and ask them how they study and prepare to teach. If they'll, if they'll let you, study their sermons, Ask Pastor Brian for his manuscripts. Like, kind of try to understand how he puts them together. And then, you know, if, this, if your faithfulness is growing, you're being affirmed, teach every chance you get. Don't turn down a teaching opportunity. The only way you improve, the, fan, the only way you fan your, the flame of teaching is by doing it. So if, if the kids' ministry needs a teacher, teach. You know, if, 
youth group needs a guest speaker, speak, you know. If there's any kind of informal women's Bible study and you want to test, like, get in there and see if you can sub for that lady, you know, if she needs to sub and you've been, you've been affirmed, like, just get in there and start trying to do some of these teaching venues. And then have somebody that's experienced who will actually give you critical feedback in your life. Have somebody that can give you that critical feedback, who's experienced as a teacher, and they can listen to your sermons or your teachings or your Bible studies, and then you've got to listen to them. Okay? You've got to humble yourself and listen to what they say and implement what they say. And then if this, these things are growing, then you need, to, you need to think seriously about considering further training. Meaning, you know, in our case, the Expositor Seminary. All right, so we've got to keep moving. Closely related to teaching is our third gift. We're going to just barely touch on this here. What, what did I say this? Maximize it? That was the question. I didn't forward the PowerPoint there. Um, exhortation. Let's look at the gift of exhortation. So, how is it related to teaching? Um, I'm running short on time, so I'm just going to skip this. Okay? It is. All right? (laughs) You can write down 1 Timothy 4.13, which sandwiches this, this ministry of exhorting, exhortation, that's the word group, in between all the other public aspects of, of corporate worship, the read, public reading of scripture, teaching. So this exhort, whatever exhortation is, it's, it's sandwiched right here in this, in this public ministry. Hebrews 13, all of the letter of Hebrews, the whole letter, the author sums it up as an exhortation. Hebrews 13, 22, which means then that scripture and this, this teaching of the letter in Hebrews 13 is an exhortation. So they're, again, closely related. Both those underlines are the, are the same word group there. Titus 1.9, again, um, this able to give instruction in sound doctrine, is that's, the, that's exhortation. It's able to exhort in sound doctrine. So you see there's, this, there's at least at a minimum connection. So what is it? The gift of exhortation is the ability to apply truth to the lives of the saints. Now, that's a, that's a massively high-level definition, okay? But I'm saying high-level, I think it has to do with the ability to apply the truth to the lives of the saints, to show them, here's what this means, here's the implication, here's what you must do, um, or here's the comfort you must take from this reality. So, it can, this term can be taken, what's tough about this gift is, it can be, is it's used in a kind of wide variety of contexts. So, let me give you some examples. It can refer to encouragement, and the way that we typically think about encouragement is like, ah, that's just encouraging, you know, it builds me up, I'm, I'm thankful, you know, it's just, that's helpful. It can refer to being comforted, Especially within suffering and trials, comfort. It can be used to that kind of kick in the pants 
that kind of motivational moment where you're pinned to the wall and you know you've got to act on what you just heard? Because that guy's exhorting you, he's bearing down on you. That's all this word, that's all the same word. It's used in these, these different shades. So we have the example of Barnabas here in the, in the encouraging department. Um, just food for thought here. This guy's first, this guy's real name is not Barnabas. You know what it is? It's Joseph. You know who renamed him Barnabas? The apostles. You know why? You know what it means? Son of encouragement. That's our word. Son of, son of exhortation. So they're watching Barnabas, and they're like, we're going to rename you. You know? We're going to name you something else. Barnabas. You know? You are an encourager, brother. So what is he doing? Well, Barnabas is doing a lot in the book, in the book of Acts, but he's oftentimes just generous in his relationships. He's gracious with others. It's Barnabas who vouches for the newly converted Paul when everyone else was still afraid of him in Acts 9. And then later on in chapter 11, he works to create an opportunity for Paul to come, to come teach and exercise his gifts. And then finally, Barnabas was so generous with others, he was willing to take another risk with John Mark in, in Acts 15. Even Paul was not ready for that. At least not yet. We're not told why, other than the fact that John Mark had abandoned them during their last mission. But Barnabas, because he was a son of encouragement, was willing to work with this guy, take the risk, re-engage him in ministry, because he believed the best. So you could say that this gift manifests an encouragement and a knack for believing the best about people and being willing to risk yourself for their development. It's encouraging and it comes out in regular affirmations. It builds up the one who is down and out, is willing to get burned again by them if necessary. But in other passages, it takes on this comforting nuance. And you see that over in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, this comforting nuance, especially within suffering. So people with this gift know how to come alongside others who are struggling and offer timely truth. They listen well, they ask good questions. People feel at home with them. They feel built up after being with them. Their faith is strengthened. They have fresh perspective to endure life's trials. And then finally, there's this final nuance here. Is it's, it's motivating. It's a motivating kind of gift. It's a mistake to think of this gift as soft and tender only. Right? It's also got some teeth to it. Some backbone, some conviction. So if we go back to Barnabas for a minute, we see the son of encouragement explicitly encouraging in Acts 11.23. Here's what it says. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. This gift knows how to take the truth and motivate the saints to faithfulness, to overcome obstacles, to overcome threats, and to take the hill, so to speak. Encouragers know the truth, yeah, but they're also able to communicate that truth in a way that fortifies the church, that gives the church a transcendent vision, that puts strength in their bones. That's the motivating nuance of this gift of encouragement. So generally speaking, if we pan out, I'm calling this gift the gift of application of the truth to the lives of the saints. Okay? So how do I know that I have it? Okay, it starts with you like all the other gifts. You need to speak in your own life before you start speaking in the lives of others. But beyond this, you're going to be generally quick to encourage and affirm other people. 
You're going to see God's grace in the lives of others, and you're going to be good at pointing that out. When people are hurting, you're going to want to come alongside them and help them. You're good at administering truth to the situation and to see people's faith strengthened. Okay, so what are some of the limitations? I know we're flying through this, but sorry. We're already over time. One minute over. Limitations of this gift, okay? The biggest one that I've seen, just experientially, is some folks are slightly less discerning at times. Okay? They're a little more naive, especially when they're younger. Meaning they might not see the warning signs of, 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 of somebody as quickly because they're going to be willing to just think the best, which is a, a noble characteristic. Um, it's another, another limitation or a, 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 what am I calling it? thing to be aware of with this gift is it's easy to assume the burdens of others yourself instead of entrusting them to the Lord. It's easy to assume these burdens and think, I am God, and I'm the one that has to take care of these people, ultimately, rather than seeing, no, I've just been entrusted with this before the Lord, and He's the one that's actually shepherding these people and taking care of them. And then often, again, as an offshoot of this gift, usually these folks, they're really good relationally, and so what that means is they have high expectations of others relationally. Make sense? So these folks are really good in relationships and administering truth, listening, asking good questions. And so they have high expectations when it comes to their own friendships and what others should be doing for them. So just beware of that. And then how to maximize the gift. Well, there's lots of things we could say here, but I think one of the things you're going to find yourself trending toward is sort of the counseling aspect of ministry and helping people deal with their problems, being a good encourager, knowing how the truth applies in specific situations. So any kind of counseling training that we provide here at TBC, you'll hear this acronym, the MIT training. You'll hear that thrown around a lot. Um, that's, that's our kind of baseline training. It's kind of to get, get, kind of get you in, and that's a great place to start. But then you just observe others who do this well and seek to imitate them. Listen to what they do. You know, read the book, Practicing Affirmation. Um, that's a great, great book uh, just on encouragement and exhortation in general. So we're going to wrap it up here. And I think just to bring it all together, you might say that the shepherding gift, that first one that we talked about, is, a, is kind of a combination of at least, at least the gifts of teaching and exhortation. Right? It's a combination of at least those two gifts, probably more, but it kind of is, again, there's lots of overlap between some of these gifts. All right, we don't have time for questions, but I'll, I'll be around after service if you guys want to talk then. So we'll be dismissed now.